Welcome back, my Mindset Explorers. Today's guest is going to bring you more information about visualizations and meditations than I can even express in this one minute intro. He's lived in a Buddhist meditation center. He's got 14 years of visualization and meditation experience. And he is leading teams for 10 plus years working in his own business. On top of that, he is a professional coach that's focused in neuroscience-based coaching. He's really been able to explore the energy of mindfulness and helping people become visualization experts that can overcome any hurdle in their lives. My conversation with Nikki, we get into the works of it, man. I will say that we talk about things that change my life, things and practices I started integrating into my own life and rewriting my programming and conditioning and what I thought mindfulness meant and what visualization meant and the tips he gives on how to visualize they're worth listening to. So this episode is packed full of information. Be sure to stick around through the entire episode because there's not a dull moment throughout it at all. And without really further ado, I don't want to keep you from it. Let's get into the show. Nikki, it's really exciting to have you here. I'm really pumped to be able to have you on the show. I know that we've been in contact outside of this show, but being able to really have you on the show and dive into what you have to bring. I know in your years and experience, you've had a lot of skills around visualization and meditation and mindfulness and even lived in a Buddhist center for a while. So I'm really excited to have you here. But first off, I want to say thank you for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. And I've always enjoyed our conversation. I think the name of your podcast is so great. It gives such a good con- context, the art of mindset. There's like the science and art of mindset. So looking forward to seeing what useful things will come out. Yeah, it's going to be a really fun conversation we're going to have. And I like to always just have our guests and our listeners relax into the show. And the best way I can see us doing that together is if we turn back the wheel of time and we go back to who was Nikki as a kid? Who were you on the playground? I was the kid who was probably overly curious and how to get into exciting situations in a way that necessarily wasn't the ones that the neighbors and the older people wanted to have. And probably also, to be honest, a little bit of exaggerated story, stories might have been flying from my mouth in the playground. But like the main image I have is building dams out of, um, out of not snow, also from snow, but from sand. That I remember enjoying that so much, like castles and dams and so on. That's a lot of creativity, right? A lot of flow in the mind and figuring it, things out and asking a lot of questions. For those that might not know, where'd you grow up? Where were you from? Yeah, right in Finland, which, by the way, five times in a row on top of the happiness ranking just came out again. And yeah, I lived in a or. I was born in the capital, Helsinki, and lived in a small town called Lakehead with 30,000 people. And I don't know what, what else to, what else would I tell about that? That's where I grew up in. That's still a fairly okay sized town for Finland. 
30,000 people. Yeah, 30,000. That's a pretty good, it's still small enough and quaint enough that you get to know each other a little bit if you're working in that kind of, but it's also still big enough that there's still sometimes you'll come across people you don't know and things you don't know and have an experience. Gro- growing up through that, what was your go-to then? What were, what was Nikki involved with the most? Ice hockey and you would say soccer, but football. I played both of them, but really it's, it's, I was just talking with my wife about this is that we live in this very safe village, but somehow we wouldn't very easily send our daughter anymore to just play out and into the forest. But back in those days, it's not like I'm super old or anything, but we were all the time playing around in the forest, playing ice hockey somewhere, walking on ice on the lake, all the time doing something outside, like catching bugs, irritating the neighbor's dog and running away from it and stuff like that's what we were that those yeah what was my goal those were my all that i'm doing some sports but also there was already involved this let's say deeper aspect like i remember already those moments as a very small kid even even three to eight year old where i would really wonder about things like death and boundlessness of the universe so that was also there Wow. Yeah, those are heavy topics to be thinking about as a kid. So you said that's something that was always a part of you. Was that something you were up brought into or an upbringing? If somebody raised you into bringing this awareness to you or how did that kind of boil up? Well, that's all that in some way, that's always been a little bit of mystery to me is to think about like, where do these things come from? Because already when I was three years old and I saw the first dead person with my own eyes, my great grandfather, because the tradition was to have the casket open. And already in that moment, I realized that my parents will die. And I was thinking about those things and I don't, uh, they didn't come from my parents or I don't really know where they came from. I remember like vividly remember moments from very early childhood where is this this sense of awe of this sense of whoa i remember i think i was two years old my parents told me i know it from that i saw i guess i consciously saw a big train i remember in that moment like some kind of sense that whoa there's something so much bigger than me so that but if i look back i have no idea where those things came from don't know where they can <laughs> they just pulled up yeah there's parts of us that we have these inklings these ideas these hunches that kind of stem our curiosity to go out there and find the answers and sometimes we don't find the answer at all or ever and that's part of the mystery and the journey of it all i want to ask as you grew up i know i had people in my own life but did you have anybody that was influential in your upbringing that you would say the reason i am who i am now is because of blank that I think four people come to my mind and I wouldn't probably said even a few years ago that it, my parents, because it wasn't my parent. I didn't realize before that my parents had this extremely subtle, deep baseline influence on me, which I'm forever thankful for because they always encouraged me and they never put obstacles in the front of me or you should be this or shouldn't be this. So that's almost, I see them indifferently than these two other person that I will now mention is 
my grandfather who's still alive I think he was the one who instilled some kind of wisdom or this desire for tradition and something deeper and then my ice hockey coach he was just so amazing on the level of mindset and this already since he became my coach when I was 11 and he made us do let's put it this way he was so good leader that he want that he created a situation where he wanted to pull everything from us and he was able to put us through three four hours of crazy exercise and practice and we would just love it and just a second yeah that's fascinating as those people that yeah that bring up parts of ourselves and like you said the baseline component of something that you don't even realize where you're talking about an upbringing and not getting in the way of you and saying you can do good things and you can't have that so i'm going to fast forward the wheel a little bit and go into the future to a point not too far but i want to know what kind of mindset you had graduating in high school or coming out of high school or coming out of early development and early education and where do you go from there yeah not good mindset i think let's say around 16 17 i feel like a little bit lost my path Uh, it became somehow important to me to belong into the crew of people who were i don't know if i've always been a bit wild but not in a way that would be actually harmful but i would say around 15 or 16 i started hanging around it was, I think, part of this anger that was a bit growing in me because I felt that I had so many questions and I felt like there wasn't answers that somehow society, religion, and so on were just going in this status quo mode. And I had all these questions and I felt I never even was heard that wasn't ever answered or taken seriously. And that took me into the path where I started rebelling, like started doing actually pretty stupid things. And that's the only time from my life I would say, where would I say, between 18 and 22 that I'm was necessary, but I, that my mindset wasn't very good. And it was big struggle between what I deeply felt and what I was actually doing. I was reading a lot of books about spirituality and science and whatever there was back then about brain but outside i was doing stupid things like drinking too much getting into trouble with police trying some drugs mainly mainly weed and then thank whatever thank god thank universe that part of me the deeper part of me broke through when i was 22 and i really like this left that which wasn't easy to leave that group of people but that was that's the only i would say era from my life where of course i guess i it's good that i went through those things because i definitely discovered that there's nothing in like nothing in those things that i experienced that would be actually an answer to anything yeah and i think there's parts of us and i like to always attest it to we have these struggles in our lives and we have these lows and we go the wrong path if you will and we walk that path for a while and sometimes we have to do that so we can gain an experience of 
what it's like to do that way we can connect with another person that is there now when we're on the other end or the other side of things looking outward or outward inward. But I want to ask, you said there was a moment that shifted you. Was it an outside moment? Was it a, how did it happen? It was a slow build. So I would say between 18 and 21, like every weekend smoking weed, getting drunk, doing kind of stupid things. And then there was this one day where I really haven't shared this with, but I never did any other drugs. But then there was this one weekend where I decided to go all out with mushrooms and ecstasy and stuff like that. And that was for me almost like conscious kind of, let's see what comes out of the mind when I do this. And nothing pleasant came out of it. And still for some time I hang around with the same people. And then was one very specific moment where I was on the balcony of my friend's home. It was 3 a.m. And at that point I, I had already stopped completely drinking and smoking, like became completely sober. And I looked around 3 a.m., Everybody has passed out. And then there was this rap song by Talik. I don't remember how he's pronounced. This rap song came from the loudspeaker saying, stay away from the waves of the world because shit is deep and so on. And in that moment, I was thinking like, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? And I walked home in that instant. And it was winter in Finland, middle of the night, I walked 10 kilometers for about two and a half hours. It was minus 20 degrees. But I was just so, okay, that's it for me. And then from that moment on, I just cut myself off that group of people, which created, of course, this slightly strange situation that I went from big group of people into having just few friends. Yeah, wow. That's uh, quite a story. You have these, I like to say, catalytic catalytic moments in our lives that kind of shift and change us and we have an opportunity to awaken in that or shift into it or push outward of it. I want to see if there was something that led you to say, you know what, let me actually dive into these spiritual books even more. I want to go live at a Buddhist meditation center. What was that about? How did you say, this is what I need to do? That's again, that I just simply my conscience or something from deep within was saying, man, this is not you. And I followed that voice. And then for two years from 23 to 25, only thing I was doing, I would work, exercise, read spiritual books. I didn't have TV or anything back then. It wasn't like you'd have thought that I would be scrolling. I would only write things, read and do that for two years. And then one of my new best friends who worked in the same restaurant, I used to work as Seth as me, he, with him we started talking about spirituality and mind and like the universe and existence. And both of us were practical, so we didn't go into critical, practical but critical, like neither one of us was into like let's just, I don't know, whatever, believe into something and wish something. And one day he went to this Buddhist meditation center. And by that point, I had read a lot of Buddhist books and I really liked them because it emphasized the self-discovery and that you need to gain your own experience of how the mind works. And it's not about believing into things, but still always one of my big obstacles has been my arrogance. And so I really resisted going into the Buddhist center. But one day I said, okay, well, 
I guess I've gotten as far as I can on my own, so I might as well go and try it. And then when I went to the center, I had this feeling of I'm home. And the people were not only normal, but they were really cool, interesting, bright people from lawyers, doctors, construction yard workers, teachers, so all kinds of range of people. And when I sat down to meditate for the first time, it was the best way I could describe it. It felt like coming home. That would be the best way to describe it. Everything that for the past on my in my life had been like coming up, finally it was like, oh, or here it is. Here might be the, some answers. I would say that's fascinating to be able to do that and have that experience and step into that. And it's something that I too would want to experience and feel what that's like. And maybe even some listeners are wanting to know what that's like. I'm curious to know, I know you spent there almost four years, come a little shy of four years. For those that are looking to have that experience and go into a silent retreat or into a meditation center, a Buddhist meditation center, what would you say to somebody? Do they have to live there for multiple years or is it something that they can do in a month or a week? So first we quickly distinguish, that's a really good question, distinguish between going into monastery for retreat and living in lay Buddhist center so if you want to go into monastery and so on you can go for silent retreats for months and so on up to you i lived in a we could say not monastery but living meditation center meaning that we are lay people we work and that center was for everybody who wanted to still remain in the society but want to still go to the retreats learn about mind and we would teach also businesses and schools or meditation and Buddhism and so on. So in that sense, there's no something you should or you have to do if you want to have the experience. And of course, for me, we could say that it wasn't a choice that I could have made because in that center, you are voted and accepted through the community and even through the teacher because there's a big responsibility to be there. So there's no, let's say, one experience that I could give advice on. But I would say that whole living there really enriched. Obviously, one thing is that when we are in our spiritual journey, and how would I say, we have this doubt about, am I the only one doing this? And does this mean that I have to become some like crazy, like, impractical person who doesn't live in the society it's very useful to have with you people who have the same questions who also who can have a lot more experience than you have and you can see that how well they function as human beings that's one thing that my teacher always emphasized like you please don't become some person who's converting everybody into buddhism be practical be useful in the society yeah, I bet that was a lot of influential moment. Probably something that's very influential for people to see and gain that experience and maybe even thinking about trying to do this at home. And I know now you're in the meditation experience cornerstone, right? You, This is what you offer people in mindfulness as well. So someone that is just trying to and says, I can't even escape my job, my state, my country, wherever I'm at, I can't go off to do do this. What would you say to those people that are trying to shift that mind into this state, but they want to stay at home? 
Yeah, yeah, you definitely don't you don't need to go to monastery or into the Buddhist meditation center. Actually, there's nothing you need to do. I think one of the things is to first to answer or ask ourselves and to make the I don't know differentiate, but are am I in a path of like growth of performance or and do I want to also discover the deeper layer of existence? Do I want to do them both or just one or the another? And I would say that if we want to use meditation and mindfulness for our growth, for our mental well-being, for our energy or clarity of thinking, then I would say it's enough that it's very good to speak with somebody who has experience because there are so subtle things, as you probably know, there's so subtle things inside us that is very difficult to not fall into and so on by if we are just reading a book but then if we, if we want to go even deeper in the spiritual part then especially to have some people around us that have some experience but let me try to be practical with that question is probably the first question to ask ourselves is why do I want to start meditating why do i want to have this because that will already give us a lot of clarity why am i by the way doing this and that will give us some guidance or where we want to go and as a final thing to this one why like i am biased of course but why i think it's so important usual to have some person who has a lot of experience from how to bring the benefits of the meditation in daily life is that what I see, for example, a lot is there's the apps and there's a meditation teacher, which is great. However, they all offer this one one fit for all solution, which definitely when it comes to meditation, there's, how would I say, for example, if you have very creative and active mind and then somebody offers you a meditation to only calm you down, it's actually not very useful to you. It's almost like somebody is a surfer and there's big waves. Better teach the person how to surf the waves than to teach them how to try to calm down the ocean. Yeah, that's a really good analogy there. I want to say maybe somebody that doesn't know that answer, if they ask that question, and maybe there's a listener out there, somebody that you've talked to in the same way, they say, why do you want to do this meditation? Why do you want to do mindfulness? And they say, it's because I've seen other people have good success with it or it's changed their life what would you say to those people i would probably ask them that what is it that you saw in those people what especially like it changed their life it has been good effect what did you specifically notice and then that resonated with you because that will define or help to give direction to what to do next if somebody says it seems that they have less anxiety okay then there's meditations and there's path that helps you dampen anxiety but if somebody says it seems like their behavior changed they're more energetic they're clear in their communication they seem to have discovered something deeper inside them then then you might want to because how would I, I think it's very useful to also look at mindfulness as a totality of three things there's the view we could say that's the mindset how do we perceive things? What are our tendency? How do we approach life? And then there's the meditation, which is like a gym for the mind and laboratory for the mind, where we 
understand how our mind works and also develop this mental energy and stability so we can more deal with life. And then there's the action, which is how would I put this, is to become quite conscious of what kind of thinking, no, not what kind of, but rather become conscious of how does my present thinking, dealing with emotions, acting in the world and speeds, how does it actually affect me? So if we have those three things and some guidance, whether it's codes or mindfulness codes, then I think we are pretty well covered. So hopefully that answers the question what I would, I, it's not that I, what I would do, but what I do with my clients is, is to first, if, the, if a client comes to me and they say, I want to start meditating, it will take three to four hours before we have really gotten to choose a meditation for them that I record and create and write down for them. Because first, what do they want? How does their mind work at the moment? Because I have clients that are very calm by nature. And for them, they might want to develop more energy, but they have this quality or strength of calmness and then I'll create meditations that don't go against their strength, but builds up their weakness. But then I have clients who are entrepreneurs who have this idea, that idea, and this thing going on and that thing going on. For them, I'll use that strength in the meditation so that they become better at surfing their mind rather than calming it down. Yeah, I think that's really powerful in knowing how and what you want to do. And I think that's where a lot of lost in translations take place, right? They think, and I want to get your definition personally, but I want to know, I think the translation gets lost in what meditation is or what mindfulness is. So in the easiest way possible, how would you define those in their complexities okay easy that's a really good question the easiest way to define them i would say it is the gym and laboratories not that you really go in but your dire not usually our direct attention is to go to figure out everything about the outer world but what if we just simply see how the mind see how our mind functions so that it doesn't take over us and then develop this mental energy and strength that we can be present but that's not a very what would be a lot better define it is that being allow like true mindfulness you guide yourself to be in this mind state that whatever act you do thinking speaking or actual physical action that it really comes from your whole being because when we act from our whole being when we're connected with it all our actions are very informed but nothing clumsy or clunky way not okay now i will say this word and then i will move this and but it's really flow would be probably the best way it's like mindfulness is the ability to live from flow whether you are in tragedy or you're having a triumph or normal daily life three attempts the last one was the best way to describe it yeah (laughs) yeah it's a complex topic it's a complex thing to nail down it's very lucid and it's like you said it's a flow of a state so getting into that was something that you probably gained a lot of in the buddhist meditation center and learning how to become focused in neuroscience coaching and all the sorts, I want to ask when are the strengths 
what are the strengths around visualization in these parts? Yes. Yeah, so one of I recently I looked back into my in the coaching training, which neuroscience based, and now with fourteen years of visualization, I of my own experience and with clients, of course, I see it works, and I have some sense of why. But just recently, I was reading and. So I'm going to almost quote or explain w- how visualization, why it works, because I think it's really cool what they discovered. So when we are visualizing, which doesn't mean that we are trying to force images necessary. Just like right now, if everybody who's watching this or listening to this, if you close your eyes and if you imagine ice cream or your loved one, you don't see like with your eyes, but you still can have them in your mind. Anyway... Let's say that on Friday, you are going to have a very difficult conversation. And then you imagine, oh, there, it will be difficult because I will have to speak my truth. I will stick to my truth and boundaries. The other person will not like it, but I have to do it because otherwise I betray myself and that will be even worse. But I'm still afraid that what if I don't hold on to my truth? So what we can do there is we literally imagine ourselves in that situation how will it feel when the conflict comes okay how would i want to behave even if the feeling comes how do i want to feel and we are in this visualization which is really important we are embodied we are in our body and then we imagine how will it feel after we said the truth how will it feel one hour later and then this calm starts coming then we imagine ourselves in the situation, but this time we are like a, we are watching it from the ceiling or we are watching it from outside. And then I, for example, would ask the client, so imagine now there's that you, there's that you, future you is there, now speaking truthfully. How are they speaking? How are their shoulders? They are relaxed. And that's what the clients often say. How are you speaking? What can be seen in your facial expression? Okay, how does it feel to see yourself like that? Okay, now go back into imagine being in the body and do it again. Now look at it from outside again. And why this is powerful is when we are embodied, when we are embodied in our imagination, activates the mammal brain, which is responsible for emotional motivation. When we are in neocortex, which is why it's very useful to ask a person who is stressed out to see the situation from outside, because the neocortex can do that, which is if we think about it, how crazy it is that we can imagine things like that. And when we look at it our, from outside, if we look at our behavior, amazing thing happens is that the mammal brain connects the positive emotion into the behavior and the new behavior becomes very much incentivized and prioritized because now mammal brain and neocortex basically have made an agreement Let's do this behavior because it will feel good. So that's why visualization works because it, we, we know this mysterious reprogram your brain, but that's what it means. We connect emotions and we can generate emotions. We really can. We connect those emotions with new behavior and we imagine them from the body and from outside and they can become quite quickly the new pattern, which is just amazing. And everybody can do it. 
It's incredible that we can do that. And what we used to think was old or not old science, but what you had to do when you were a kid, right? Neuroplasticity and rewriting your brain and all these sorts is coming out to be that, no, you can do this anytime in your life, whenever you choose to. So if somebody's choosing to do some visualizations, they've listened to this, they've seen it before, they've got a lot of content around visualization and they want to do it, how often should they visualize in order before or whenever the episode of the event in the future is going to take place how often should they do it before it yes so ideally and really if you think about it, it's not so much if we can just do it in five minutes per day when it comes to what's my vision for life and how I, what am i going to do about it tomorrow or today if we even imagine ourselves going towards our vision feeling it and so on five minutes a day it will become so big part of us so there's no it again it like it comes to what do you want we could say do you want to live a life where you're mostly in the flow then okay can you invest one hour into it and if the one if person says can't then we okay what's better use of your time what are you going to do with that one hour and likely you'll find that they'll be anxious, they'll be doing some low-level activities, low-level according to them. So, again, it depends what we want. It's one hour per day might sound like a lot, but if we sleep eight hours, we will be up for, my math math is really bad sometimes, 16 hours. It seems like it is possible to do at least 15 minutes out of 16 hours. Because it, it's almost, let's say, our mental energy, our mental state, being, let's say it's a fireplace, then if you can for 15 minutes per day gather wood and keep the fire going, it seems like that's pretty good investment. So is it five minutes before bed, five minutes when you're waking up? Are those the best times, these dream states for visualization? I, they are best because when we wake up, whatever it is, you wake up but if you wake up at even seven or earlier or something if you can allow yourself to not do much else than that then the mind is very we would say it's very flexible it's very mind is in a state or the brain is in the state where you can mold it quite nicely for the day and again all these things are science-based so if you read for example what our brain does during the night it's so much work goes on during the night. And if we can do five minute visualization before going to sleep, you can imagine it's like telling to your brain, hey, here's some, here's a plan, here's material for you. Can you work with that? And the brain will do the work. That's not a law of attraction or anything like that. Our brain really work so much during the night yeah you spoke on the strength of prayer and i'm curious is that what is the mindset there behind that if somebody is trying to pray and they are praying or they want to pray what how does it how is it actually showing that it's working or we are seeing that even in the eastern spiritual systems that are very much experience based that emphasize experience not faith even then the further you go more prayer becomes part of it and one might ask like why like aren't you experienced based you shouldn't have faith and that's because in west we have a little bit funny idea about prayer it's almost like i'm here i don't have these things 
dear God, could you give me this thing? <laughs> could you give me these things? <laughs> That's our approach. But if but that can still in some way work, how would I put this? Is okay. I'll focus on one part of the prayer. However, you'll do it. Why it's so powerful is that it will remove the ego out of the way, and it allow will allow us to open up to parts of us that are a lot more powerful. That are, that the ego is always in in the way. If we look at it in the level, if we look at it on the level of the brain, we could say that ego is the master product of reptile and mammal brain. Sometimes ego is functioning, sometimes it's not, but it's a product essentially of reptile brain and mammal brain. And if we can pray or relax and open up to something, it really will light up the neocortex and allow us to allow the best qualities in us to come forward because the limitation of the... I don't so often talk about ego because what does it mean? But so maybe to explain a bit, ego is the tendency to focus only on things that are short-term, comfortable and in every way possible moves us out of discomfort, uncomfortable things. That's essentially what ego attempts to do. And that's why it is so limiting. I would say the ego is an interesting part. And I have to say, if I have an understanding of why and why I think prayer works in relation to that, is it is a larger self, right? We're praying to God, we're praying to the universe, praying to an energy larger, bigger than ourselves, a source, whatever you're praying to, that prayer is in a belief pattern of, it's not me, it's outside of me, so that is going to be likely to take place. But like you said, you're pushing that ego aside and you're allowing and believing that those things, since you prayed, can be and can happen. And then you start to subtly, traditionally, subtly change your behaviors, your actions, and next thing you know, your life might, your prayer might have come true. And that could be the universe, it could be God, it could be all of sorts. But I think it's an act, we're an active role in that co creation component of we intentionalized our and we believed in letting that go. And in that, with the ego and with information and around mindfulness and figuring out how to practice it more. If somebody is looking for to get more into meditation and more content around it that is simple to understand, provides productive actions and basically practical steps, is there somewhere they can go? Is that something that you offer? So a few answers to that and something you said that was really important about moving the ego to the side. I just realized that I didn't actually use it in more healthy way meaning that actually when we open up to something bigger the idea is not to remove the ego but this ego finally surrenders and aligns itself to something bigger that's actually that is we could say that is the end of the unhealthy ego it's not that we kill it or get rid of it but the ego finally surrenders to something bigger and yes so for example if we are planning to start meditation one thing i know that i can provide a lot and i have a lot of resources even if the person doesn't want to go into one-on-one coaching but i'm go- i'm not going to leave out some things that would be useful so dr joe dispenser so let's i meditated for 14 years and i 
done a lot of retreats with meditation masters my teachers are from tibet and i would say there's a lot there and i'm saying that only to give more credit to joe dispenza because i met joe dispenza's work after 10 years of meditating and i would say it was like i was so happy to read his books because it was like great here's an approach that most westerners can use and make sense and is science-based. So that's why I like his work a lot. Maybe I'll get there one day with books and so on. I know I can provide those things, but his work is amazing. He's done really great work. Yeah, I would say that the anybody that's trying to, again, figure that out and any, anything that they're wanting to get into mindfulness and meditation and getting into the flow and allowing themselves to, like you said, I like the, that analogy is the ego surrendering to a larger portion of self or God or something bigger than itself. That's all very powerful things. And I think that's something that a lot of people might struggle with. And I like to, we're coming to the tail end of the show, but I like to always get some people to some understand some practical steps and also figure out where you're going in your journey of mindfulness and meditation and what you offer. So what is something that, that you're, that you offer or you're offering that individuals can go and find that can help them? So I, my flagship course that I'm really proud of where I have poured everything into is called energized mindfulness, which is basically teaching people how to truly live from flow every day. And it covers nine, it, it's nine weeks and it covers nine very specific steps. And these steps are, let's say, quite a lot of research experience with clients' experience and myself built based on that. They're built in the way that covers the whole complexity of who we are, yet it's not complicated. And basically, nine steps where we build vision, builds energy and direction for the life. Then we build a plan that serves the vision because often people get confused in this too. And then when we have a plan and a vision, then we want to make sure that our mindset, the way we think is actually clear, that we are not the person who is lost in the thought, but actually can think and then learning how to manage our emotions. When we have those four things, then we can look into ourselves and, okay, now that I have this covered, how do I live a daily life that really covers my whole life? Okay, if that's how I want to live my daily life, what are the habits that will really root all these things into my life and then learning some tools and stretching our mindset even further is basically the steps I take. For me, when I say spiritual practice, it's almost same as saying that I'm looking what's under the hoof of my car, like how the engine works. It's For me, it's the most natural part of life. It's not a special or separate part. And in that area, I'm becoming more and more again the student and i'm really enjoying that i have my regular one and a half hour meditation that i do every day and then i do a bit of yoga and i'm going to say it but i do really aim to become enlightened (laughs) so let's see how that will go and then when it comes to how i'm integrating all this coaching mindfulness into my work i'm What I really want to see is, especially leaders and business owners, but any people who have discovered this mental stability and all the things that they have inside that they can bring 
them practically into the world, but especially that they can be examples in the world that, look, you're really going to be stable, energized, and clear person, even when things get really difficult. That's my mission and energized mindfulness course. I would say that's the best way at the moment I know how to make that happen. I love it. I love it. I love the, <laughs> and good luck getting enlightened. I think that's a hefty goal and it's going to be well worth it, but it'll be a lot of fun along the way. I want to ask one one last question. We'll wrap up the show here, but I want to say if you had one piece of advice that you could give to a listener or to your younger self, what would it be? I truly, really make sure you have a vision for life that encompasses who you want to be for others, for yourself, what are the qualities you want to live for, what truly makes a meaningful life to you, not in the sense that you need to go find the answer, but you actually discover the answer. And essentially, I would say, make sure you have a vision that you every day connect with. Like, I, without vision, everything, there's no context. Of course, it's a little bit of big statement, but without vision for life, there's no context for anything. If we don't know who we want to be, what's important, what are our values, then how do we assess life? How do we decide what action to take if we don't know the direction? True. You have to know which way you want to go. Where do you want the boat to sail? Where do you want your life to move forward? And that's the vision and that's the idea. And then you got to plan how you're going to get there. Granted, you can always change directions. You can adjust, you can pivot, but you need to have a destination in mind and along the way. Nikki, it's been awesome chatting with you. We've gotten into visualization, meditation, mindfulness, some great tips and tricks on how to incorporate it in each of our own lives and i want to say always a pleasure and thank you so much for coming on thank you too brian and i think you are a really good example of somebody that definitely looks or like has this presence of somebody who's very mindful and present with great questions and you're like you're so articulate with how you express yourself so thank you very much for that i really enjoyed it great questions and that's this episode of The Art of Mindset with your host, Brian LeSage. Before you leave, I want to ask if you don't mind going down and following and subscribing this show if you haven't already. Also, be sure to leave a review. It always helps us grow this podcast and get more people in touch with their true mindset that can unleash their own potential. And if you want more information or want to receive a newsletter that I send out every Monday, be sure to go over to brianlesage.com and sign up for that weekly newsletter where we provide you with insights and how to improve your life with a mindset tip. And as always... Stay curious, keep expanding.